0: The New Testament lesson is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, and I'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears, tears away from it, the, old, uh, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. But no one puts new wine into old wineskins and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abathiar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The word of the Lord Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer amen please be seated have you ever uh, had someone say to you after you've made some snide remark who do you think you're talking to maybe you've been the guy who uh has used that phrase who do you think you're talking to there's a sense in which there's a, a set of, sort of an, uh, an offense that you're responding to and trying to make certain that people acknowledge uh you know That you don't deserve that kind of treatment uh, that you shouldn't be addressed in the way that they addressed you sometimes though uh, we don't recognize authority figures we just maybe are oblivious we just don't watch the news or don't have a sense of who is in charge of what i remember uh years ago a friend of mine christopher layton who is a episcopal uh, priest in uh, cambridge massachusetts He had the misfortune of having the Weld family in his congregation. So now you might not remember the Welds, uh, but Bill Weld was governor of Massachusetts. He was libertarian, uh, ran for the United States uh, presidency back in the early 90s. Uh, And I mentioned Bill Weld to people today, and they're like, well, who? Well, if you were from New England, you know who he was. He was the guy who was responsible for the big dig, that enormous tunnel that went under the city of Boston, and made the place a much more pleasant place to live but cost a ton, a ton of money. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one he was a what you would call a C and E Christian. You know what those are, right? Christian and Easter Christians. You know they just show up on the big days, and he would show up with his wife, who by the way was much more faithful. Uh, and uh, after church, you know, Christopher, my friend, was greeting them as they, uh, you know, among the other congregants who were leaving the building. Uh, and Bill Weld said to him, "Do you know who I am?" And uh, Christopher said, "Yeah." Do you know who I am? <laughs> kind of uh, making a point there. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, when you come across people that maybe you know uh, at a distance, or maybe because you've seen them on television, it can be kind of a shock to meet them in person. I remember I was in an IHOP, an IHOP, the International House of Pancakes, in uh, uh, Manchester, Connecticut. And as I sat there munching on my pancakes, I saw some of the hosts of, of you know, SportsCenter on ESPN come in. So some of you just are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but anybody who's watched like ESPN knows what I'm talking about. So they came in and I thought, well, what do you know? They are real. They're, and they're all shorter than I thought. That's one of the things, you know, when you actually meet people that are famous and you're like, you're always surprised that you know, these are human beings, but also they're always, seem to be shorter than you thought now uh, questions sometimes uh, reveal your ignorance uh, but other times they reveal other things about you Um, one of the things that we see with regard to these questions that are asked of Christ is they don't really know who he's talking who they're talking to if they knew who they were talking to they would have the answer to the questions or the answers to the questions that they ask his identity in other words is the answer to the questions If they understood who he is they would understand why their questions were not either good questions or they would have the answers to the questions and uh, this first case we see basically uh, how do you expect them to fast remember the, the episode here so Christ's disciples are not fasting but John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting and then somebody comes up and says to the Lord why don't your disciples fast And essentially the answer is, you don't realize who I am, do you? That's really how he responds. He says, if you understood who I am, you wouldn't ask that question. And then he gives them the illustration. How do you expect the guests at the wedding to uh, fast when the bridegroom is present? He doesn't directly say, moi, bridegroom, with a big, you know, sign over his head, I'm the guy I'm referring to here. But uh, subtly he's making that point. Now let's think about fasting a little bit because it's something that's fallen out of uh, favor with lots of folks. Um, I think sometimes we maybe even avoid fasting because we're afraid that we might fall into a kind of works righteousness Christianity. So in order to avoid that particular sin, we just don't do something that's really good, (laughs) which is fasting. There is a purpose served by fasting and the lord actually uh implies that his followers will fast in this account right he says when i'm when the bridegroom is no longer present my followers will fast something to think about have i fasted uh, when the lord is addressing uh, his you know audience on the sermon on the mount uh, he says when you fast not if you fast so something else that would indicate yeah this is sort of a normal part of the christian life but what's the purpose of fasting it's not like something you get up and do is say, hey, I can't wait not to eat anything today. It's a, it's a day of celebration. I'm just not going to eat anything all day because we're having a great time. No, it's actually the inverse, right? It implies that there's a problem. And there are some things to think about with the relationship to it. I think that it accompanies often mourning. I think sometimes people involuntarily fast. I just don't feel like eating. I'm just so, so crushed by what happened i I just i've lost my appetite there's kind of that natural impulse to to respond it just doesn't seem right you get news about someone's death and you say hey let's go out to thank god it's fridays and let's have a big meal no it's like that's just not appropriate a time like this it's time to abstain it's time to step back it's time to reflect it's time to think it's time to mourn it's also uh, an exercise in discipline If you want to, uh, say, win a marathon, let's say you've got that as a goal in your life. Do you just like wake up the day of the marathon and just say, hey, heading out there, see what happens. (laughs) Gonna run. (laughs) They pick you up two miles down the road and take you to the hospital is what happened. You had to prepare for the trial of the marathon. And you could say that fasting is a way for you to strengthen your spiritual muscles. Like one of the ways that I think people misinterpret Jesus you know, in his experience in the wilderness is uh, they more or less assume that uh, all of that fasting weakened Christ's resolve. And that's why the devil showed up at the time he did. When in fact, it was preparatory. He was preparing for the temptation. He was strengthening uh, his resolve to obey his father. Then there's another thing I think it's at work as well. When you fast, you are setting priorities and you're putting a priority on spiritual things. Now, I know that we're all afraid of falling into Gnosticism and kind of uh, sort of uh, dismissing physical concerns as not spiritual and something that we shouldn't be concerned about as Christians, but let's keep in mind that throughout the New Testament and the Old, there is a priority s- placed on spiritual matters, on a, matters related to the soul, and that we do need at times to uh, exercise uh, self-denial when it comes to the, you know, care of the body in order to stress what needs to happen spiritually in our lives. Let me give you an example of how this works. Sometimes this is how I've employed it in my life. Sometimes there'll be a matter that's of great concern to me that I'm, you know, uh, praying about, and I'll fast. I'll fast and pray. And whenever I feel a pang of hunger, I, re- I ask myself, what's more important, eating or this particular matter? I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I'm not trying to be righteous. I'm just using the hunger pain as a reminder that the spiritual concern and very often it's for people in my life that i'm concerned about and i'm praying for to remind me what's most important and as a reminder to pray when you're suddenly you know sort of in the grip of hunger you feel like either eating or praying <laughs> and it's at that moment that i'll often say i'm going to pray and i'll be reminded to pray it's sort of like a little alarm clock in my life reminding me pray for so-and-so pray for so-and-so pray for so-and-so i'm not saying that this is like a law i'm not trying to bind your conscience don't get worried i'm just giving you a little bit of uh, you know material to think about when it comes to how fasting can work in your life and by the way you are expected to fast at least christ expects you to fast weddings of course are a time for celebration time for food time for like the big spread you know and here's the bridegroom and he's essentially saying you expect them to fast and i'm here come on you guys just don't get it and they don't and this is the the context within which he brings up the you know the matter of the of the cloth and the and the wine so you know he talks about a new patch in an old garment then he talks about new wine and old wine skins and he says if you put the new patch on the old cloth then you're going to tear it even worse if you put the new wine in the old wine skins you're going to end up bursting the the wine skin and losing all that wine this is just not the way you do things and what that implies is that Christ is something that doesn't fit he doesn't fit into their expectations he doesn't fit into even the the, the, the traditions and the foreshadowing. Put, let me put it this way. One of the great things that Augustine said is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay? They work together. Now, if everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to Christ and Christ shows up, then everything that it's been pointing to is there in the person of Christ. It's fulfilled. So all of the stuff that you use to sort of evaluate right and wrong and how to do things you know, in you know, the covenant community have to be brought into question because guess who's here? You remember the road to, to Emmaus, right? Remember the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? There are a couple of guys. They still don't get it christ has been crucified for their sins he's also been you know he's also risen from the dead they get the report they don't know what to make of any of this and then they meet some guy on the road some mysterious stranger they don't recognize who they're talking to and as they're walking along uh to, you know the lord says to them, what are you guys talking about and they say well, are you the only guy around here who doesn't know what happened in jerusalem here in the last few days and then they explain And then, what does the Lord say? He says, you morons. It's actually in the text. You morons. You don't get it. The entire Old Covenant, the the Law and the Prophets, all that was pointing to this. And then he shows them in the Scriptures how all of those things were pointing to this. And then, later on, of course, as they're sitting down to eat, he breaks bread and their eyes are open. They get it they see him they recognize him and then he's gone that's what we have here we've got a set of expectations and a reality and the reality that's being presented to these people doesn't fit the expectations that they have because they don't recognize who they're talking to now let's take a look at this next episode they're walking through a grain field uh, and as they're walking through the grain field, the disciples are still eating. <laughs> These guys are just eating, eating, you know, they're not fasting, they're eating. So, and it's and the it's Sabbath day, and they pull some uh, grains off the stalks, and they run them between, between their hands, and then uh, consume the part that's edible. And uh, the Pharisees see this, and they chastise Jesus, and they say to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, in this particular episode, Jesus also uh, says something that gives an indication that they don't know who they're talking to, but it's a very subtle way of going about it. And he says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of uh, Abathar, Abathar, or Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful, but the priest to eat? and also gave it to those who were with him this is a fascinating illustration to use because it's uh, apparently intended to uh, address their question but it doesn't seem to address it very directly it's not there's you know, sabbath day isn't addressed uh, we see something that's holy that's been set apart for a holy use uh alluded to which is of course the bread of the presence but there's something i think very subtle as i noted before that's at work here in the reference to david now when we think about the lord uh, one of the things to keep in mind when we refer to the lord is that he is the son of god and we hear references to christ as the son of god in the new testament we also hear references to the lord as the son of man right in fact in a very short period of time here in the next few Uh, verses, or next few words, we're going to hear Jesus referring to the Son of Man. But he's also the son of who? David. Again, a a subtle allusion to uh, his status. So this is what David did, and he is not condemned. Something remotely similar to that is happening, and we are not condemned can you make a connection here? They don't. But he goes on to tell them after that, and I'm gonna get into this more in a moment, that uh, the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. And then that verse 28 reads, "'So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath.'" Now, before I address that particular uh, set of verses, uh, I'm going to uh, talk about a couple of other things. I want to just reflect a little bit on the bread of the presence. This is one of those uh, things that we see um, in, in the temple and in the tabernacle that we don't give much thought to. But in the holy of Holies, there is uh, the holy place, there is a table, and on that table there are 12 loaves, and they're to be kept fresh. They're the bread of the presence. And the implication is that because the number 12 corresponds to the number of tribes, in some sense, these loaves represent those tribes in God's presence. Now, what's also remarkable about about, uh, those loaves is that, uh, that they're not presented to the Lord as an offering to be consumed. Instead, they are consumed by who? The priests so some again some very subtle uh sort of things that are occurring within the, the context of the story we have 12 disciples we have 12 tribes we've got eating we've got feeding by the way in the story with regard to that episode in first samuel where david is on the run from saul and he's need, you know needing some food uh, he asked for guess how many loaves five now we see the Lord receive five loaves later and use five loaves to feed 5,000 people. Again, there are some very subtle things going on here, and I don't want to make too much of them, but I don't want to ignore them either. These are sort of intriguing connections that I just want you to sort of mull over and think about. I think at the very least, the thing that we can say is that Christ's companions uh, are enjoying the same benefit that. David's companions enjoyed when they were with him. There's some connection here that is being made between David and the son of David. But let me take you to this last point, this point that I think is uh, perhaps the most intriguing for me, and this is the reference to the, the, uh, the Sabbath and uh, the Son of Man being the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what follows is another fascinating episode, and it's in a synagogue. And let me read it to you just to remind you of how the story goes. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Who are they? Well, Pharisees. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately did what? Praise God? Uh, Spread the good news about, you know, the Lord Jesus? No. They held counsel with the Herodians, of all people, against him how to destroy him i uh, i came across a book a few years back with a title that really kind of burned itself into my my memory the title of the book is um, only the paranoid survive now when you're in a situation when you really are surrounded by people who are out to get you this is a this is really something that's worth remembering because when they really are out to get you, yeah, and this is another thing I've, I've said, just because you think everybody's out, together, out to get you doesn't mean they aren't. <laughs> so in this particular case, they really were out to get him. And he knew that. And because that was the case, um, he was uh, very, uh, I, I, I think you could say, uh, prepared for any trap that would be set for him. And there were a lot of traps that were set for him. Now, why was this sort of environment so... So uh, suffused with uh, political intrigue and institutional agendas and so forth. Well, if you know anything about the first century in in Jerusalem and in the surrounding uh, environment, you know that there were a lot of political interests that were at war with each other. And the, the place was just like a powder keg ready to blow at any time. And everybody knew it. And everybody knew that if things got really out of hand, there was a foreign power who could come in and uh, reestablish the peace, the Pax Romana. And the way those guys went about it wasn't very peaceful. (laughs) They would uh, pacify uh, the uh, rebels in any particular location that they uh, uh, found themselves engaged with rebellion. Now, in this particular situation, Jesus is not naive at all. He knows what they're up to. And I think about that a lot. I wonder if sometimes um, we should do more uh, along this line ourselves, sort of following Christ's example. You you remember the what would Jesus do? You know, there are a number of things that we immediately have come to mind when we ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? But uh, what generally doesn't come to mind is set traps for people who set traps for you. And that's exactly what he does here. They are waiting for him with bated breath to heal this guy and he knows it now he does heal the guy but he does it in such a way so as they condemn themselves rather than them being in a position to condemn him and how is that he asks this rhetorical question by the way this is one of the things that Jesus does you ever notice that he never answers a question straight He doesn't just like like stumble and bumble into a trap and just say stuff that there's just no way to respond to without making yourself look really bad. Instead, he responds with his own questions. And we see that here. He asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. So he speaks again and the man's hand is healed. Now, they don't get the point. They still don't recognize him for who he is, which brings me to the matter of spiritual blindness. Why is it that we can't see what's right in front of us sometimes? I think there are reasons why we can be blind. Uh, Sometimes our expectations blind us. We're looking for one thing and something else appears, and we don't see it. But sometimes we miss what is right in front of us because we don't want to see it recall in uh, 2nd corinthians chapter 3 i think it is uh, when the apostle paul talks about the law being read in a veil covering the hearts of those who hear the reading of the law and then he makes a connection with moses and moses went and and uh, god Displayed his glory to him and it affected him in such a way that his face shone And then when he returned to the people they were appalled at his face, and they begged him to cover it That's what we're dealing with here. There is a there is a sense in which uh, We as fallen creatures in sin cannot bear certain truths And consequently our hearts are veiled Now I want to reflect a little bit on uh, As I conclude on this statement the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath now the reference to the Son of Man of course is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and uh, we see in the context of that chapter that it's referring to the Messiah and so Jesus in a again a very subtle way but unmistakably is referring to himself as the Son of Man and the one who fulfills what that prophecy is referring to but uh, let's think a little bit though about the, being the Lord of the Sabbath. You noticed uh, that there were two accounts of the Ten Commandments read today, or at least the Fourth Commandment, which relates to the Sabbath day. In our responsive reading, there was the account from Exodus, and then uh, the account that was read by Leon is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means, by the way, second giving of the law. So um, there's a subtle difference, though. Many of the many of the things that are, are stated in those two accounts of those commandments are the, are almost verbatim but the justifications for the sabbath day are different in the first case in exodus you have the account of creation and in that account uh, it uh, is stated that in 6 days the lord created the heavens and the earth and on the 7th day he rested therefore that should be the case for you as well so it's like creation and vacation you kind of think in those terms But Deuteronomy doesn't refer to to the creation. It refers to deliverance. It refers to the fact that they were once slaves in the land of Egypt, and they were delivered by a mighty outstretched arm. And because of that, they owe their freedom to their new Lord, and their new Lord gives not only them a day off, but everyone connected to them a day off, because he is a better master than Pharaoh. But I think there's more to it than that as well. What is going on on the Sabbath day for the Lord? Have you thought about this at all? So think about creation. God labors, creates heaven and earth in seven days and says, "Woo, that was a lot of work. I need a break. Does that sound right? No, that's not right. With the word of his command, things come into existence. There isn't effort in the same way that you and I exert effort. It's just simply the display of God's power. So what could rest be referring to? Well, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when rest is referred to, it means the labors of establishing a kingdom are completed, and now the time of rule has begun. So David, he was a fighting man. He was a man's man. And uh, he fought to establish his kingdom, and then we're told that when he had rest on every side, he built his own palace and went to the Lord and said, I want to build a temple for you. It was time to rule. And then, in response, the Lord says to him, because you are a man of blood, you are not permitted to make a temple for my name, but your son, who will be a man of rest, Will. Time to exercise the authority over the domain that has been established. So the rest of God is the sitting upon the throne and ruling kind of rest. It's not a day off in the sense that we normally think about days off. Now, don't get me wrong, I like days off. But I think we miss something of significance when we put it in those terms. Think about it this way. Uh, Christ labored to save us, And then he entered into his rest. And where is he seated now? On his throne. He governs. And we enter his rest. What does that imply? Does that mean we just kind of sit around in clouds for all eternity playing harps? Or do we rule with him? Are we joint heirs with him? Something else to think about. You know, sometimes I think we place such a strong emphasis on the goodness of our vocations and by the way we should our vocations in the world laboring in this world to exercise dominion I think that's absolutely right but we lose sight of the fact that the Sabbath day is not just simply a day of rest to get back to work we work to rest we work to rest there's a marvelous book by a fellow named Joseph Pieper German theologian, philosopher, not long after World War II, that he published entitled Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And the argument that he makes in that book is the things that are most valuable in life are not things that you can earn for yourself, they're gifts. They're gifts. And the Sabbath day is a day in which we receive the gift of being in God's presence. We receive the gift of meditating upon all the things that God has done for us, all of the good things that we enjoy through creation and through redemption. It's a time for us to express our gratitude, to sing his praises, and this is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. The work is important, don't get me wrong. I love to work. Uh, I love to be engaged in creative uh, activity. But I think when we think about the Lord of the Sabbath and our being recipients of this marvelous blessing, the Sabbath day, it's really in keeping with what Jesus says here in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We are to enjoy being in the presence of God. We're to enjoy meditating on the things that have been done for us by our Lord. We're to offer up gratitude and thanks for those things and recognize all the while that we didn't earn any of it these are all the marvelous gifts of our gracious god and we rest in that and the end of the story is we rest in him forever let's pray heavenly father thank you for your word i pray lord Uh, that its richness would enrich our lives. There are so many things that could have been said that I didn't say, so many things that could have been said better that I didn't say as well as I wish I had. Nevertheless, uh, you are at work through your word and you can do marvelous things in our lives through it. I pray, Lord, that that would be the case. May your word bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.